Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. Just go play baseball. You know, I, I, I remember the St. Louis Cardinals scout came up to me. And, He's probably the only scout I talked to all year. And he said, would you sign if we took you in the 17th round? And I remember just looking at him with a smile on my face. And I said, well, draft me and find out. And I said, I'll see you in Chicago. And our guest this week is David Miller. He is the head baseball coach at Penn State Abington. Just took over the job uh, as we are talking here not that long ago. And David, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure to be on. Uh, so why was this the right job at the right time for you? As crazy as it is, you know, I was a 47-year-old bachelor. And over COVID, we did a uh, Zoom call with my grade school class at Norwood Fontbonne Academy in Chestnut Hill. On that Zoom call, I met, reconnected with my, my oldest friend. We went to first grade together. Her name was was Dolores Roman. We started dating through the Zoom call, and six months later, we were married. You know, so when LaSalle unfortunately closed its doors on the baseball team, and and I was getting interviews and you know trying to find the next fit for me, you know, I just thought it was best. You know, I, I went from a single guy to a stepfather of four overnight, and I just didn't think the right place for me was to be away from Philadelphia. So, you know, I'd been offered a couple of jobs that I uh, respectfully declined. Um, and then when Penn State Abing- Abington came open, you know, it was kind of like divine intervention. You know, my father was a graduate of there, uh, of Penn State Abington, back when it was called Ogons, Penn State Ogons. And um, it was like a divine calling for me to come to the school and, and, and I get to stay home. And that's what I love. I'm a Philly guy, born and bred. And, you know, what better place to to build a, you know, a dynasty than, you know, the school that my father went to. And, you know, I, I grew up five minutes down the road. And you're taking over a team that's got a lot of talent, it seems like. Yeah, they I mean, uh, uh, former coach, uh, Coach Kopsky did a fantastic job of getting some very good, talented players on campus. Uh, you know, I think they were 20 and six last year. And, um, you know, we returned just about everybody, but maybe one or two players. And, you know, for me, it was just, you know, I, I always thought I'd want to be a division one coach, but at the end of the day, it's coaching that I love. So it really doesn't matter where I coach or who I coach. I just love to coach, but yeah, this team, this team has some very, very talented players on it, and I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do this year. How does the approach shift or change when you're taking over a program? You know, LaSalle had its struggles when you took it over, and here you're taking over a program that's enjoyed success. How do you do you approach it differently when these, these groups are in different stages of development? You have to. I mean, I, I, when I took over LaSalle, I, I needed to change a culture, uh, a locker room culture of getting guys to bringing in the right players at the division one level to be able to play and understand that they're playing for the name on the front of the Jersey more so than the, the name on the back. And so it took me a couple of years to establish the right culture at LaSalle, the, the one that I wanted, you know, in our last year, we saw much success there. We were just getting started, but here, at Penn State, there's a culture has already been established and I don't want to come in and try to, you know, blow it up, you know, so I'm more so staying in the background and, you know, I, I got the job in the middle of January, you know, so I, I literally have a month to get these guys ready for a game. So it, it's not about me just jumping in the deep end and establishing, you know, doing everything that I want. You know, I need to take what these guys have done, 
you know, observe, see, manage, control, and let them kind of grow. You know, you, you've got a, a bunch of kids that, that have, that have seen success. And I don't want to disturb that right now. I, I put my input in and, you know, I, I let my, we coach, but this is a group of kids that, you know, we're trying to take where they were, which was in a good place and, and elevate it to another level. It's a whole different thing when you're coming into a, a winning program than when it was coming into a, a program that hadn't seen success in quite some time. So growing up in the Philly area, I'm curious, what's your earliest baseball memory, either playing or watching or whatever? What's the when you think back to your young days with baseball, what's the first thing? Well, for I mean, this is one of the things that I find crazy about today's baseball players is they're not I don't think they're historians of the game. And I think that's very important. I mean, I could sit down and talk about the 1980 Phillies like it was yesterday. You know, I was six years old, seven years old, watching the Phillies with my my nana and my pop, my grandmother and my grandfather. My nana was a diehard Phillies fan. She she would tell her favorite player was Manny Trio. I don't remember if you remember him, the second base. He was my favorite when I was a kid, too. <laughs> so that, I mean, growing up, I was just a diehard Phillies fan. I mean, when you're talking about Mike Schmidt running out with the wig, you know, Steve Carlton, you know, you talk about Bob Boone, Pete Rose, Shake and Bake, Greg, Gary Maddox, um, Greg Luzinski, like all these guys that I grew up idolizing, you know, and then, you know, as I got a little older, getting to play for the Phillies in 1999, getting to meet all these guys. And now they're kind of your friends and, you end up playing with their children, Gary Maddox's kid. You know, I played against him in college when he was at Maryland and I was at Clemson. But I mean, like, it's just we're Philly people. We're 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 diehard. So, like, you know, you you bring up the Phillies in the late 70s, early 80s, up to 83. You know, I, I was going to every one of those games, taking the subway down with my grandfather. He, we'd sit in the nosebleeds and he made a living out of not spending more than three bucks at a game and we would have a great time. <laughs> but that's probably, you know, when it really became the real deal for me was 1980 Phillies. How about playing? Were you baseball all the time when it came to playing or were you playing whatever was going on in the neighborhood and whatever your friends were doing? No, I was, you name it. I played it. I mean, I, like even in high school, I, I played four varsity sports when I played uh, baseball, basketball, football and track. But I always wanted to, you know, the sport of the day when it was football season, I wanted to play college football when it was baseball, college baseball, when it was basketball, college basketball. That was just it. So, you know, I was a pretty good athlete. You know, I, I could have went and played three sports, you know, at different levels in college. Um, but, you know, baseball was always my true love. So um, when it came down to making my decision, that was that was easy. So. Do you remember when you first realized how good you were at baseball? Like, was it a tangible thing where you start to realize you're getting picked first? You're getting people are talking to you that maybe aren't talking to teammates or aren't talking to friends. You're you're getting attention that maybe other kids weren't. I think that came about my junior year in high school. I mean, I it's funny. I was always one of the smallest kids in my class. I wasn't very thick. You know, I was very skinny. I couldn't get wet in the rain. But I was also short. You know, I, I look back, I was five foot four, five foot five in the eighth grade. And the doctors told me, like, you know, you're not you're not going to grow very much. The kids around the neighborhood always just told me I was too small. You know, you're wasting your time. That always motivated me. But going from eighth grade to ninth grade in just that summer from eighth grade to ninth grade, I went from five, four, five, five. I shot up to six, three. So in one summer, I grew, you know, almost a foot. And, you know, then I really started to blossom as an athlete, but it was my junior year. I mean, it, I, I was a left-handed pitcher, really, is where I, everybody wanted me. I threw in the, you know, low 90s in high school. Um, and I went to an American Legion East-West All-Star game, and I threw two innings, and I struck out all six. And it was after that game that all of a sudden, you know, you were getting recruiting letters from Ryder and, 
you know, a few schools, local temple, Skippy Wilson. Um, and then all of a sudden it was Miami, Clemson, um, you know, Georgia tech, Arizona state, NC state, you know, they all, it went from good D one local schools to nationally big top 10 schools all over the country. And, uh, that's when, you know, so it was my junior year that I, I really started to focus that I had a chance to be something, you know, past high school. Was that when you're getting recruited on that level, was it overwhelming at all? Or did it just seem like the ne- it was just kind of the logical step of how things were progressing? I, you know, I always knew what I what I was capable of because of my work ethic. But I mean, you know, when it started to get to be a recruitment on the national level, it, it really kind of changed the, the way I approached it. You know, I, I knew it was, you know, this is what I wanted to do. And so now it became more of, you know, I have to do more than the next guy. Um, you know, so for me, I look back at, at the stuff that I did in my driveway at midnight, you know, um, you know, I was even getting heavily recruited for basketball. You know, I had, offers at, you know, like Providence, Seton Hall, um, Maryland, you know, some big D1s for basketball. And, and, you know, on a Friday night when everybody was out having a good time, you know, my dad put up, you know, spotlights all in the backyard and I'd shoot baskets till two in the morning or I'd throw or hit, you know, in, in a little cage that my dad set up in the backyard. And it got to the point where that's that's where my focus was. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a girlfriend in high school ever because I was just so focused on, you know, I wanted to be the best athlete I could be. And the neighbors were very supportive, you know, never complained about balls hitting off the garage door or anything like that. But, you know, I, I, I just knew that if I was going to be the best, you know, I had to have that Kobe Bryant mentality. You know, I, I, I had to put in the work and that's what I did. I mean, you know, got me to Clemson. You talked about the love for baseball and that's obvious, but were there ever any moments you seriously considered a basketball track when, when those recruiting during that yeah. type of recruiting process? Yeah. I mean, uh, I look back in our, in my days at Chestnut Hill Academy, you know, my, my basketball coach, you know, you know, maybe rest in peace, John McGardle. Um, you know, he was a very big mentor for me, you know, even up until, you know, he passed away last year, but I mean, like he understood, like, you know, we had some good players at Chestnut Hill. I know we had a, you know, ahead of me, we had a a player named Paul Burke who had a very successful career at LaSalle university. And then he went on to play overseas. So I started training with him, but you know, my senior year, you know, I, I was six foot five, you know, I could jump, I could shoot, you know, I took pride in my defense. So, you know, it was one of those things where I knew I was going to play baseball, but I, I highly considered a few schools that were open to me playing two sports, basketball and baseball in college. Um, I knew it would be tough, but you know, that was when I really looked at schools like Ryder, um, Seton Hall. I mean, I think they ended up dropping their baseball program down the road, but no, 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 no. Providence did um, Seton Hall, but I, I considered it like even Maryland, you know, I, I considered it and um, I would have been prepared. I mean, there was some great talent back in the day when I look at all the NBA guys that I played against in high school, when you go back to Rashid Wallace was a freshman at Simon Gratz and Alvin Williams, you know, he had a great career at Germantown Academy, Katino Mobley. We played when he was uh, at Cardinal Doherty. I mean, so even in high school, we were playing future NBA guys. So I was holding my own with them. So I knew I, you know, I didn't realize there were going to be NBA guys at the time, but I was in Iraq MVP in 92. I I shared that award with Alvin Williams. So yeah, something I considered. What, what finally sold you on the baseball only? Was it what Clemson, the opportunity at Clemson? Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, I, I, I went on a bunch of visits for college and, you know, I remember going to, to NC state and my parents loved NC state. I was like, this is not for me. I wanted something different. And, you know, I always thought or was told 
hopefully you'll walk on campus one day and you'll know right away this is the place for you. I remember taking my recruiting visit to Clemson and as we're driving into town, you just started seeing tiger paws on the street leading you into the town. And I was like, wow, like this is, this is a whole different level of coolness. And then when I, you know, met the team, I went to practice. It was the first time that I ever saw guys practicing in full uniform. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. You know, I, I, I would play high school baseball in my Kmart, you know, glove and, you know, these guys all had everything top of the line. And it was just, I knew the minute that I walked on that campus, that was the place for me. So, you know, I went, I went down there and after my visit, you know, I, I committed right on the spot. I mean, I knew that was it. Before we talk more about your college, you, you talked a lot about high school at Chestnut Hill Academy and some of the guys you played against and such. If, uh, if you had to pick a favorite memory of your high school athletic career, at Chestnut Hill, what would it be? My favorite memory of my high school career would have been winning when we won the interact title in basketball. I mean, we, you know, I liked that, that year because, you know, the year before we had the superstar that went off to college and, you know, we were a bunch of nobodies that excelled in other sports when they went to college. You know, I look at like our team, you know, we had um, Gerald Howard who went on to, break all sorts of records at university of Virginia for track. You know, I went to uh, Clemson for baseball. Our point guard was a kid named Reed Goodwin. He went to, I think he went to Princeton or something for soccer, Craig Urian. He went somewhere for rowing. So the only real basketball player that started on that team was our, was a kid named Mike Gizzy who ended up going to LaSalle, but we were just like a bunch of, you know, nobody's that wasn't expected to do much, but that's not the way we thought, you know, like, you know, we, we played as a team, you know, we, you know, we ended up, uh, I think we went eight and two in the league that year, but I mean, we just, we were just a group of guys that, you know, wasn't about who scored the points. It was just about getting the W. So we worked hard. I mean, our, like, I just look back at, that was my greatest memory. I mean, like, our baseball teams at Chestnut Hill were, were awesome, but you know, we, we weren't winning a lot. So I don't, I don't really remember much other than, you know, personally me doing some, some, some good things, but it was just, there's a lot, it was a good time to be at Chestnut Hill Academy back then. There was just so many great athletes, you know, from Chris Brazil to Ricky Knox, you know, they went and played football. Brendan Kilfeather went and played football at UVA, I mean, I could just go on and on about all the, the athletes at that school that just made that a very special time for me. You know, everybody who just pushed me to be a better athlete and, you know, kind of helped me to understand, you know, you know what, what my path was going to be. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Penn State Abington head baseball coach David Miller right after this. And we are back. Our guest this week is Penn State Abington head baseball coach David Miller. So Clemson, you arrive, you talk about how everything is is top notch and, and everything as far as uniforms, equipment and all. Uh, how's the transition to the college game and the transition socially to life in the South and to the level uh, that you're surrounded uh, by talent uh, baseball wise. How was that transition on all those fronts? It was great. I mean, it, it was, you know, I didn't go into Clemson with any expectations, you know, like I, again, like I try to get kids to understand um, I had a life philosophy of everything earned, nothing given. And, you know, when I was a freshman at Chestnut Hill Academy, you know, you know, my high school baseball coach, Butch McNally, pulled me aside and said, you know, look, you're good enough to make varsity, but you won't play. I recommend you go to JV and play every day. So when I went to college, you know, that was my mentality is, you know, I'm going to go out and earn it. I'm going to work my butt off. And if I'm not a starter right away, I understand, you know, I was a veteran heavy team at Clemson my freshman year. I got a, a chance to learn, you know, we had big leaguers like Keith Williams and Billy McMillan in the outfield. And then we had a senior heavy infield, Jeff Miller at third, Joe Taylor at second, Jeff Morris at short, 
uh, Chris Carter behind the plate. They were all seniors. It just, you know, we had this all American outfielder, a freshman who started his career at first base because we were so deep veteran, heavy talent in the outfield deep. So he started at first base, but it wasn't that easy for him. So they moved him back to the outfield. And by the 17th game of the, of the season in my freshman year is when I got my first opportunity to, to get a start. And, you know, it's one of the things to today that I still preach to my athletes is, you know, every day is a new opportunity. And that was my opportunity. So, you know, I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. I just went out and did what I thought God put me on this earth to do. And that's play ball, you know, ended up getting three hits that day. And, you know, eventually I, I earned that job. And, you know, I remember going to Clemson as a, as a left-handed pitcher, but we had some serious studs there. I mean, Chris Benson, he went number one overall. Billy Koch went number four overall. We had Jason Dossie, Scott Winchester went to the big leagues as a closer for the Reds. Ken Vining went to the big leagues with the White Sox. But I remember my coach, uh, Coach Leggett, brought me into the office after my freshman year, and he said, listen, Dave, like, you know, we got to talk about next year. He's like, look, if you want to pitch, I think it will be best you go somewhere else. But, uh, you know, if you want to play first base, then, you know, I'll bat you third for the rest of your career. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess I'm a first baseman. <laughs> and uh, and it was great because now I knew I knew where my life was taking me. So now in the weight room, I could change my body to be a little bit bigger, to be a hitter. And I think it was at the end of my sophomore year that I really blossomed and started to become a man and finally got some facial hair and, you know, hit 200 pounds and in the weight room, you know, that's when things really took off for me as far as becoming a, a next level prospect. Did you miss so, pitching? Well, I always look back and I always say like, if you're a left-hander and you can throw in the, in the nineties, it would be great. But, you know, I was, I was so skinny in high school and my freshman year of college, I would throw it's almost like I would get hurt every time I threw because I, I just didn't have any muscle on me. It's just, I was just skin and bone. So I think if I had stayed at pitching, I would have probably eventually had done something blown out somehow. You know, I tell myself that, but I think that's what would have happened. So, but I loved to be a guy that played every day. That was like, I love to get up and just, I knew you're going to the ballpark. You're going to play. You didn't have to wait five days or six days to get back out on that, that field. But that, that was me. Like I, I loved being on that field every day. So I, I miss it, but I don't miss it. If that makes sense. Your career at Clemson, obviously a ton of success. Uh, you get to play in the college world series, multiple conference championships, kind of the same question about chestnut Hill. When you think of your time at Clemson, what's the, the top memory? What's at the top of the list of things that come rushing well, back? You know, one of the things about, you know, maybe me being a college coach or a baseball player is like, I don't remember much of, of what I learned in, you know, chemistry class or, or algebra or, but I can remember, you know, what pitch I hit on a 2-1 count in, you know, May of 1995. Like, like it's, that's just one of the things that is a gift for me is, is how much I love baseball is I just have kind of a photographic memory about every game that I've ever played or coached. But when we, we beat Alabama in the regional final in 1995 to take us to the, our first college world series, you know, that was probably one of the coolest things that I've ever, ever been, a, been a part of. But I mean, there was just, I mean, I can't, there, like when we when we won the ACC championship in '93 in Greenville, South Carolina, in front of 18,000 screaming Clemson fans, like that was pretty cool. We 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 repeated that in 1994, you know. But we came up one game short. Tim Hudson from Auburn beat us in the finals in '94 to go to the World Series. So when we beat Alabama to go to the World Series in '95, that was pretty special. I mean. You know, I, I I honestly always look back like I'm extremely grateful for being a first round draft pick and I'm extremely happy about my pro career. No regrets. But uh, I always wonder, you know, 
I, I talk about this a lot in, in 93 when, it, you know, it wasn't my team. I was kind of learning the ropes. We won 45 games that year, went to a regional in 94, we won 57 games. And that was the first year that, you know, I felt like as a sophomore, I wanted to be a leader on that team. I took the reins in 95. We fell one game short of the world series in 94 in 95, we went to the World Series. We didn't execute well. And I always think if I had gone back for my senior year, uh, you know, I know Clemson went back in 96 and, you know, the pitching staff was just so loaded, but I think they were one hitter short. And I always look back, man, like if I had just gone back for my senior year, they finished third that year in the country in 96, losing to Miami in the World Series. I almost feel like if I had gone back, we would have been national champions in 96. Every year we were just one step better because we were just one step hungrier and more motivated to be the best team in the country. So getting to the World Series was awesome um, to answer your question. But like, again, just my time at Clemson is just was unreal. Every day was a great memory for me there. So you mentioned you get drafted in the first round at 95 by Cleveland. What is, what was the draft process like for you? And was it a flashback to recruiting or did it have a different feel for it? Back then it was, is completely different than it is now. I mean, now it's like a, a giant TV show. I mean, they, they, they wait till the end of the world series and, you know, they make a big deal out of it. You know, a lot of the times now these kids know where they're getting drafted. You know, they have their representatives or their, you know, so-called agents. So they know what's going on. Back then the rules were completely different. I mean, I was in the college world series the day of the draft in 95. And, you know, I remember coach Leggett brought me into his office and he said like, look, man, Nobody knows where you're going to go day one or day two. So don't sit around the hotel and wait for it. Go, go out and, you know, get lunch, go to the mall, do whatever, you know, it was our off day. We, we had just finished practice in the world series. So we had the rest of the day off. So the Clemson Tigers, we all went out and, you know, we're just kind of walking around Omaha. And, you know, when I came back to my room, there was a blinking light on my, on my phone to call coach Leggett and, you know, he basically got me on the phone and said, you know, how would you feel if you were drafted in the third round? And I would have been like, coach, freaking awesome, man. Like, and he's like, well, you weren't drafted in the third round, so don't worry about that. But how would you feel if you were drafted in the second round? I was like, holy smokes. Like, <laughs> I was using worse words than this, but I was like, <laughs> I was like dude, that would be fantastic. Like, coach, dream come true. And he's like, all right, well, congratulations. You were drafted in the first round by the Cleveland Indians. And it, it was at that moment that the entire team was in my room. It was like a dog pile on my bed. And, you know, I still get choked up because it's just like, you know, it was just a, it was just a life of work that was finally being celebrated and recognized. And um, it was a great day. It was a great day, but it was different back then. Like, you know, nobody's calling me, you know, they, the, the, the Indians called my coach. <laughs> so I didn't even speak to the Indians for two weeks after that, because we were at the world series for the next week and a half. Then they let me go home, settle in. And then we, then they came to my house. So it's like, you know, completely different. And then 95, the Indians went to the world series that year. <laughs> so I think I wasn't even, I don't even think I was like, they had bigger things to worry about. And I understood that, like go win that world series. So it was cool. It was cool. Did you have a lot of contact with them prior to the draft? You know, we had, we had some coaches who sat us down early and understood the draft process. Like, you know, I still, to this day, I try to tell kids when I was at Penn charter or even at LaSalle, like, if you start focusing on the draft, it's going to eat you alive. And if, if you're playing for the draft, it's going to eat you alive. You're going to play worse. So we did a great job of shielding ourselves from that. We understood, just go play baseball. You know, I, I, I remember the St. Louis Cardinals scout came up to me and, 
He's probably the only scout I've talked to all year. And he said, you know, would you sign if we took you in the 17th round? And I remember just laughing at him or looking at him with a smile on my face. And I said, well, draft me and find out. And I said, I'll see you in Chicago. <laughs> Something like that, you know, and, and uh, I walked off. But I think that was the only conversation I had with a scout the whole year. Like, I just, it wasn't the way it was back then. I mean, like, I didn't care. Like, for me, it was, if I got drafted, that was a great honor and it was a dream come true. But we had bigger things on our plate and we we were focused on Clemson baseball going out and winning a World Series. So you get drafted by Cleveland. You join the organization. Uh, how do you, you know, first year or so as a pro, does it make sense? Are you able to keep up speed of the game? You feel comfortable or were you playing catch up at all that first year? Well, so I was a holdout the first year. I mean, it, it was weird. I mean, I, you know, these were some of the things that you learn when it becomes a business. Um, you know, they were trying to get me as cheap as possible. So I missed the entire um, short season in Watertown. Um, I signed like a week before we went back to school. And so when we went, had my first season, it was definitely an eye opener or because, um, you know, like, look, I was used to playing 60 games. We play four games a week, Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, and we would play from February till May, you know, um, when you get into pro ball and then you realize like, Hey man, this is your life. Nobody's telling you to train anymore. Nope. You know, like it's all on you. So I thought I had prepared year one, but when I look at what I went through, when you realize it's now a job, you know, I, they flew me to Cleveland in 95. I spent the entire winter in Cleveland learning, you know, training at Cleveland. And then I did fall instructs. Oh, I'm sorry. I went fall instructs then to winter workouts in Cleveland. Uh, then I had like a month off for, for Christmas. And then in, like the end of January, middle of January, they brought me down early for spring training. And now you're in Winter Haven, Florida, where it's humid as all hell. And, um, you know, you're on the field starting at 7 a.m. and you go to 5 p.m. every day. So, you know, you're 20 pounds lighter at the end of every day because of all the sweating you're doing. Anyway, long story short, like I had a great my first year in a ball. I was in Kinston, North Carolina, and I was. I hit 300 at the all-star break, you know, after 70 games. And I think that's what my body was used to. And then I hit that wall. And then I remember that I started the second half of the season. I went seven for 77 and my average went from 299 down to like 240 something. And like, that was my first real slump of my life. Like I'd never been that you know, that bad before, but that's when I realized that when people start talking about the grind of baseball, that's the grind. Cause you're playing, you know, in major league baseball, you're, you get a day off a week in minor league baseball, you could play 35 games in a row before you get a day off. So I, I just don't think my body was ready for it. And, um, you know, we ended up getting to the eight, we played in the Carolina league championship that year against the Wilmington blue rocks you know, I, I came out of it, my slump, and I had a great finish to the season. But, you know, I hit 250-something my first year. It was an eye-opener for me. Uh, but then, you know, I came back and I kind of understood what was going on. I hit 300 in AA the next year. And, uh, you know, I had a, I was off to a really good start my first year in AAA before I got hurt. And then, you know, from there on out, it was like from 98 on, it was like uh, – the shooting match of trying to stay healthy. It's just like, I kept, I tore my hamstring. I just kept tearing my hamstring. So just kind of went downhill from there. How frustrating was that? Cause that's something you can't really control. No, there's nothing worse than when you, when you're, you know, when you, when you get hurt and you can't help the team and you really can't even help yourself to get back on the field because you're rehabbing, like, it's just, it's very, very frustrating to the point because you, you know what you want to do and you know what you could do, but your injuries are limiting what you 
actually do. And, um, you know, they had projected me to be a big power guy. I could run really fast. You know, I was 20, 30 stolen base guy early in my career. And, but, you know, the home runs didn't really translate in pro ball. But, like, you know, once I started hurting, my legs got hurt. It's almost like I couldn't, I couldn't use the strongest part of my body to hit. So, you know, now, you know, as a coach, that's my big thing is the importance of stretching, staying healthy, taking care of your body, you know, uh, understanding, like I, my big saying to my players now is if you hoot with the owls, you better know how to soar with the Eagles, you know? So, you know, like I was always a guy that, you know, like to enjoy a cocktail after <laughs> the games, you know, I'd say one, two or 20. Um, and so I always tell guys that if, you know, if that's the path you're going to choose, like understand the toll it's going to take on your body. And, you know, I'm a prime example of that. So you mentioned getting a chance with the Phillies in 99. That was rule five, right? The I Phillies was, took uh, you in the rule five. Yeah, Am I correct? Yep, I was rule five by the Phillies in 99. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a great few months being with the Phillies. Cause it was that, I mean, honestly, that's the dream come true. You grow up idolizing people like Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton and, and all those guys. And, and now you, they're coaching you in spring training. And it's like, wow, like, this is it. This is what I did it all for, you know? So that, that was a great, great, great few months of my life. So yeah. Awesome. It, the, I guess the Phillies then return you after they did, cause you have the rule five rules yeah, are very rule, odd. You have to stay on the team the entire season or you're offered back, right? That's correct. They, the rule five is you have to be on the big league team for the whole year or you get offered back. And when, we had, when the Phillies had taken me, um, their outfield was Bobby Abreu, Dougie Glanville. They had a, a veteran, great left fielder named Ron Gant. And then they had rule five me to kind of come in and be a, a fourth outfielder who was could earn time to be a starter. Um, and over the course of that year, they ended up going out and they ended up getting a, a guy named Rob Ducey, a veteran backup outfielder. So he was also a left-handed hitter. So that kind of put me on a competition with him. But they had Marlon Anderson was going to be a rookie second baseman for them in 99. And I think when it came down to the decision of what they needed, it came down to me or um, David Doster. And um, great guy, but they ended up taking him as the last guy from the roster. And, you know, we were, we had just broke for Atlanta when they told me for opening day. And so that was a heartbreaker, heartbreaker. I remember Don Tollison did a big story on me getting sent back to the Indians after that about like good guys can finish last. So like, I appreciated that he considered me one of the good guys. When you're playing in the minors, does that change how you look at things, that experience, that Rule 5 experience, not just not making it with the Phillies, but that the Indians didn't protect you? Is there a moment when you start to look at things through a different lens? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the Indians were were really focused on, you know, they they were in the win-now mode, and – you know, they were bringing in big guys left and right. I remember, you know, their AAA roster that I was on in 98, 99. I mean, they, they had everybody on that team other than it, two guys had split contracts. So they, they were all big league guys <clears throat> that were trying to help Cleveland get over the hump to win that world series. I mean, you had Eric, uh, Mark Witten and Pat Borders and Phil Hyatt and, you know, Ron Valone, Rex Hudler. I don't remember that name. You're, I mean, they had so many guys that they were just, you know, trying to bring in just in case they didn't want to give the young guys a shot just yet. I mean, even the young guys, the superstars, they were trading for veteran players when they traded Sean Casey, they traded Richie Sexton, you know, they're trading their, their like main minor league superstars because they didn't, they weren't ready to let those guys 
be everyday guys yet. You know, Richie and Sean went on to be all-stars with the Brewers and the Reds. You know, you had Jeremy Burnitz that was traded. And But to answer your question, yeah, that was like when you start to, you know, you realize that the game's a business. Uh, and I think one of the best things that it, it helped me understand being a coach was that, you know, um, the when I got let go from the Phillies or sent back from the Phillies, I had a horrible year in AAA that year. I think I hit 240, two home runs, and I I played the woe is me card. You know, I just, you know, I mentally had checked out. And when I look back, you know, I realized what all these kids – you know, they go through it. It's just that, you know, high school kids, college kids, minor league guys, major league guys, you'll, you'll all come to that crossroads at some point in your career. It's just how you handle it. And that's why I think it helps me as a coach, because like, you know, these kids, they work so hard. And then, you know, that first day and opening day, when you put out that lineup and that kid isn't in it, you know, that's his woe is me moment. And, I always look to see how they practice the next couple of days because are they feeling sorry for themselves or did they learn what I learned a little too late is that, okay, it didn't work out for me. Now I have a choice. I can sulk like I already did and I had a bad year or I can go work hard and, and earn it back. And so that's the big thing that I bring to these kids, but yeah, you learn it at it's a, when it's a business, like, um, it's a what have you done for me lately game. It always will be. I mean, because these these guys are paying big money now. They want these guys to be successful. So that's the one thing I learned and why I love college coaching is because these kids still, you know, play the game as a team and they play the game for the reasons that I like, you know, and I understand, like I always tell my players, like, you know, if you don't want to give me a hard 90 to first on a ground ball to short, then you know, get better and go get paid to play where you don't have to give me a hard 90 every time, but while you're with me, hard nineties. <laughs> so, um, so yes, it, it's, that was, that was, I think the first moment that I learned that the game was a business. Need to take another break on one-on-one. We will have more with David Miller right after this. And we are back continuing our conversation with David Miller, head baseball coach at Penn state Abington. When did you decide to to stop playing? Uh, was there a moment when you kind of had a talk with yourself that the I, big leagues aren't going to happen, or was I it just injury-wise? No, it was just constantly injury after injury. You know, I, I tore my hamstring so many times. I remember the last time I went to a doctor, he, you know, he kind of explained it to me the way that I could understand it, that – it had just popped so many times that it's, there's just nothing but scar tissue. That's going to keep popping. My, my problem was I stayed in too long. Like, you know, I would go to spring training knowing I, I couldn't run. And, you know, like that was the, that was probably the last thing that really made me happy was that team still wanted me, you know, they wanted me to go to double a triple a and, but as soon as they saw me play, they realized I was a shell of what I was, you know, from 95 to 2000, you know, speed wise. And so, you know, I, I kept trying to hang on and hang on and hang on and you're living the dream, you know, and that's where, you know, you think back and, you know, you always, people always say, as long as you can put on a uniform, keep going. But, you know, like, look, I was fortunate enough to be a first rounder. I made some good money in the game. You know, I was able to go play like at Camden, River Sharks and things like that. But, you know, if if it was all said and done, I probably should have retired in 2002 or three when I had like my third tear in three years. And um, that's, that's when I probably should have started coaching. Was coaching always something on your radar? Like you knew eventually you were going to want to do that or was it kind it, of the playing days are over and I want to stay in the game? No, it was like, so here's one of the things I, I don't know if this happens with everybody, but I always say like, God, I wish, you know, the game could end for everybody the way it ends for like a Cal Ripken, you know, where you go to fields and they're giving you motorcycles and cars and trophies 
but that's just not the case. 99% of this game will end bitter because you're being told you have to leave when you're not really mentally ready to check out, ready to leave. You, you know, I, I, I admire guys who tell me they went out on their own terms. I don't think I, I did. So I had to walk away from the game for a couple of years. Um, I think I walked away from the game for two years, just kind of clear my head and I needed to fill the gas tank back up with, with the love for the game again and get the player mentality out of my head and the coaching mentality in. So 2007, eight, nine is when I kind of walked away from it. And then in 2009 is when I started, I, I took the volunteer job at a division three Rutgers camp Rutgers Camden in right over the bridge. And that was my first taste of coaching. And, you know, I got to see what a real difference I was making with some of these players and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, then in 2000 and I guess that was 2010 Villanova called me, uh, offered me their hitting coach position. I was there for a couple of years, then William and Mary for a year. And then I was, you know, I was, unfortunately our coach at William and Mary was let go and Penn charter called and got me, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a head coach at that point. So that's when I went back, uh, came home and decided to take over that team at Penn charter. How much does, and you've kind of referenced this through the conversation, but you have experienced success in multiple sports as a youngster success at a high level in baseball the frustration of injury in baseball. You have all this life experience that I would imagine really helps round you as a coach where you can pretty much look at most kids' situations and experiences and genuinely say, hey, I've been there. Let's work on it this way, X, Y, Z. And I don't know that every coach has that. No, it's funny you say that because I say that all the time. Um, You know, when I tell guys, like guys – There's nothing that you're going to do or want to do or try to do that I haven't already been through or done. You know, whether it's trying to sneak out at a hotel on a road trip, been there, done that. I already know where I'm going to find you. Um, But understanding like the difference between being sore and injured is a big thing. I like a lot of these kids, they, you know, I always like tell them the, the, the healthiest you'll ever be is the first game of the season. And then you just have to learn to play with little nagging bruises and injuries here or there and soreness here and there. And it's just being able to, to push through it. But, you know, as a player, I've seen the highs and I've seen the lows, like you said, and, you know, and I, you know, I didn't get what I want and, you know, it, it, it helped. That's why I always say the best, the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me was being a first round draft pick. You know, one, it it kept me in an organization too long where I was hoping that maybe I could get traded and get my shot in the big league somewhere else. But being in a in a big league clubhouse with these guys for five, six, seven seasons, you know, whether it's spring training or whatnot and learning from the greatest minds of the game, you know, was a blessing for me, Um, you know, getting. Yeah, I, I tell this story to my Penn State players that, you know, m- my assistant coach for Penn State is a guy named Jeff Manto. Jeff Manto played at Temple, got a nice career in the in the major leagues, is in the Hall of Fame for having four home runs and four consecutive at-bats and five home runs in three days. But my first big league camp, he sat me down and he said, like, look, this should only two words should only come out of your mouth while you're in this spring training and that's yes, sir. You know, don't talk. Don't think you're anybody special. Just listen. And if somebody says something to you, just say, yes, sir. So I remembered that. So I would always be the first one in the clubhouse, never say a word. But then at the end of the day, when Manny Ramirez or Albert Bell or Kenny Lofton or Jim Tomey are hitting, I would just stand around the cage and just listen. And, um, and they taught me so much. So that helped me become a better teacher and a better coach. But being a player helps me be 
you know, look, look, kids are going to mess up. You know, we deal with it. We move on, you know, but I, I made, I let a ball go through my legs in a crucial situation that cost us a game at the university of Miami cost us our number one ranking. So I know what that feels like. I've been through the seven for 77 slump. So I know, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to try to make a team or try to make a starting lineup and fall short. So I understand all that. So like I can, I can sympathize with these players and then without kind of diving into stories of my past kind of help guide them through it, you know? And, you know, like that's, that's what, like, I don't consider myself a coach as much as I just want to, I am a coach, but I mean, like what I'm trying to get at with that is just like, you know, as a, I have that player's mentality that's been through it all. So I want to get these guys ready for all the ups and downs of a season, you know, without being that coach who really never played that game before, if that makes sense, you know. Prior to Penn State Abington, you were at LaSalle. I think you referenced early in the conversation that they they decided to end the program at LaSalle. How do you your time at LaSalle, you enjoyed success. You built a program. It was kind of taken away. I am imagining it is this weird mix of pride, excitement infuriation, frustration. How do you kind of categorize those years at LaSalle given kind of the road that it had ended up taking? Well, like the athletic director at LaSalle who hired me was a gentleman named Bill Bradshaw. Um, was the AD at Temple, LaSalle, a lot of places. And I'm, I'll always be grateful for him for giving me my first shot as a head, head coach at college. Um, and I understand, I mean, a lot of the baseball people in the college and the local level, you know, kind of told me, if you want to, you want to get into the college game again, this is, this is not a good career move for you. Like there's, you, they've, they had one winning season in 75 years. And I always look back to remember when that kid, those kids in, in grade school and high school were telling me, yeah, man, you don't have a shot. You just, you're too small. You're too this, you're too that. So the more everybody told me I couldn't do it, the more it made me want that job. You know, I knew we were very limited on resources. Uh, you know, our field, we shared with a, a field hockey team. Um, you know, we didn't have the glitz and the glamour that, that other programs had. But I knew if I could prove myself there, then it would be, a, I'd be able to build something. And, and maybe get me to a better spot, even though that was not ever my thought. Like I always wanted to make LaSalle the destination school of the Northeast that, you know, we don't have it now. And all these kids were coming in at the ground level, but in 10 years, 15 years, when they're bringing their wives and kids back and we have the stadium and the lights and the locker rooms, my first group of kids built that, you know, and, and that's, that was my recruiting pitch that got them to understand where my mind was at and it got them to want to be explorers you know unfortunately you know I don't want to talk my mom always told me if you don't have anything nice to say don't say it but you know the way it ended was a, a disgrace in my book um you know new leadership came in and you know I'll just leave it at that but <clears throat> you know yeah I I love my kids I still try to talk to all my LaSalle kids. Um, all of them have upgraded. You know, I don't, I don't consider it like, look, they all wanted to be at LaSalle, but, you know, but at least, you know, when my all American catchers now playing in the ACC and my closers playing at coastal and my Friday starters down at Houston, and I have kids at Rhode Island and Elon and Towson and, Florida International and James Madison, I mean, Westchester. I mean, it's like my kids went everywhere and I, and I'm, and I miss them dearly and I love them, but we took a team that won eight games and in three, you know, not counting the COVID year, you know, we, we won the most Atlantic 10 games in school history, most wins in school history. And I didn't have a senior on the team. So that one kind of hurts a little bit, <laughs> but it had to be, under the circumstances because that last year, you know, 
I mean, there's always hope of a change, but things are pretty much predetermined that this is it. And to have kids perform at that level and to be able, that has to be incredibly satisfying. Yeah. I mean, we, we use different tools that year to motivate our players. I mean, you know, unfortunately, like we were given an ability to try to save the program, but we found out that that was all nonsense. But like these kids were, these kids were playing for them, for that team. Like in their mind, LaSalle was that 35 guys. That was it. That's all they cared about. You know, I, I don't want to like, I don't want to say, you know, they, they were definitely playing with a middle finger to our upper administration, but they truly loved LaSalle university. They just loved it. And it broke all their hearts to have to leave. Um, but they, yeah, they were playing with a chip, an extreme chip on their shoulder. The chip that I was trying to get them to do, the fact that I actually made a, a poker chip, I, I look back and I laugh because I put 32 on the poker chip. And I said, this is, this is what we've got to get to. And I think God took it literally because once I hit 32, we didn't win another game. But, uh, you know, they took that poker chip and they carried it with them everywhere. And they they had that chip. And, man, I was th- – those will be some of the greatest memories of my life. Coaching was just what these kids endured and what they did to try to prove everybody wrong and try to prove to the school that they belonged at a place they wanted to be but were told they, they got to go. So – and my final question to you, what do you want people that will watch Penn State Abington baseball to know what they're going to get? Well, my mentality as a coach is you're going to you're going to give me I, I'm a motivator. So my job right now is to motivate these guys to understand like what's the chip on your shoulder right now? Like what am I going to do to get the best out of you? And for these guys, it's that, you know, they had a coach that left, um, you know, so that's a chip, you know, the D three rankings came out and they're nowhere, nowhere in it. And that's a chip. And, you know, you're getting a group of kids who are hungry to put, Penn State Abington on the map and exactly what I wanted to do at LaSalle was a culture that I was trying to to establish these kids are all are basically have already established it with me walking in so all I have to do is motivate teach get them to understand that you know there's so much more to learn in this game and they've got to keep growing every day. Like the only person they're competing against every day is themselves. Just be better than you were yesterday, you know? And, and, you know, my big motto motto is embrace the role that you're in today. So if that lineup's up there and you're my starting shortstop, embrace that role. If you're a bench player, embrace that role, be the best you can, you know, but this Abington team, can make noise and my job is to help them make noise and we're going to make noise. Um, I don't want to say what I think we're going to be or do or how many wins we're going to do, but have, but I think at the end of the, at the end of the season, I laugh because I said like, what's our social media following? And they're like, we have 300. I said, all right. So if we're going to, if we're doing what we're supposed to do, we're going to have 3000 by the end of this year, because that means we're making noise. So expect 3000 social media followers at the end of the year, because that's how good I think this team can be. And we brought in some good pieces. I mean, as crazy as it is, I had two players follow me from division one because they wanted to play for me and my style, which I love, you know, and I think we have some kids that can actually make a, make some money in this game so uh stay tuned is all i can say david miller this was so much fun thanks so much for the time no my pleasure thanks for having me 
And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Penn State Abington head baseball coach David Miller for being our guest this week. If you like this show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts and want to help us out, leave us a rating and a review. Now you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.